Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C. and Cringy, unfucking insane level members of the show. And today's show is brought to you by Judith H., an unfucking pro. If you'd like to join the legions of unfuckers from down underfuckers and Eurofuckers to unconuckers and subfuckers who have taken the leap to support us in our little journey to unfuck this here republic, you can become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR or purchase some organic fair trade shade grown bird friendly indigenously grown and native roasted coffee through our partnership with the Unkachog Nation members on the Poospatuck Reservation here in New York at UNFTR.com slash shop. In republics, there is more vitality, greater hatred, and more desire for vengeance, which will never permit them to allow the memory of their former liberty to rest, so that the safest way is to destroy them or to reside there. Injuries ought to be done all at one time, so that, being tasted less, they offend less. Benefits ought to be given little by little, so that the flavor of them may last longer. Niccolo Machiavelli The term Machiavellian is one of those throwaway terms that people use to describe rulers or nations that do bad things in the world to subjugate others. It's named for Niccolo Machiavelli, who wrote The Prince for the heir of the Medici family in Florence as a guide to conquering nations and ruling over subjects. The ends justify the means, or so the story goes. Many of the figures we'll speak about today seem to have taken this advice to heart, though in a twist of historical irony, no one in Machiavelli's time did. There's no evidence that Giuliani de' Medici or his son Lorenzo, to whom it was purportedly dedicated, ever even read it. While he's held up as some sort of Rasputin-like figure whispering into the ears of would-be despots, Machiavelli himself was just a guy looking for a job. In fact, old Niccolo, who fancied himself an accomplished writer, was considered in his time to be rather pedestrian, and he essentially wrote this as a way to work back into the good graces of the ruling class having been fired a handful of times from his positions and even tortured brutally by the Medicis who were testing his loyalty. Oh, and the phrase, the end justifies the means? Not his. But details like this often get lost to history, as do the men who make it. That's some Mandela effect shit. Indeed it is. How we interpret or misinterpret history matters. The things we hold dear to, policies, narratives, ideologies, are often flawed, but they gain acceptance and therefore validity over time just as in the case of Machiavelli. So today, as a companion piece to last week's episode on the global order of money, we're tackling the global order of power. But before we get there, where we left off is an important bridge to this discussion. Recall the words of Margaret Macmillan from the war that ended peace. Before 1914, Europe, for all its problems, had hoped that the world was becoming a better place and that human civilization was advancing. After 1918, that faith was no longer possible. Economic interdependence gave the rulers of the world assurance that we were entering an era of prolonged peace through prosperity. Independent nations might war with one another, but not interdependent trade partners. Business and the moneyed class would never allow it. But as the United States would demonstrate from World War II on, sometimes the moneyed class is aligned with the political class in the pursuit of power and domination and will invent reasons to weaponize policy and ideology against foes, real or imagined, without considering the collateral damage. Then again, if you're in this class, the past 75 years have been nothing short of incredible. U to the N to the FTR Unfucking the Republic beating people where they are Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry Max brings the heat of a basic white guy Could've run for office, could've got up off his ass Could've made something other than a fucking podcast But here we are, yo, the UNFPR show Many faces ripping the script 
workers around the globe. Oh, God. Well, at least it's not as bad as the AOC rap. I'm fuckers, I'm Canuckers, you're a fuckers 99. I'm the fuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to Outagami, Halifax, and New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman. So let's set the stage and disclaimers for the approach to this week's episode. Similar to last week, we're going to look at global power mostly from the perspective of the United States. Apart from admitting our ethnocentric bias, there's a practical reason for this, as the power dynamics over the past 75 years have very much been dictated by the United States, the most ferocious and warmongering nation since... Mm, hang on, let me check my notes here. Uh, President Carter, can you take over for a moment? We are the most warlike country on Earth. We are a laggard in addressing the problem of global warming, for instance, and, and we, we are now violating about 10 of the 30 paragraphs in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Thank you, Mr. President. As I was saying, the United States is the most warlike and dominant nation since the Roman Empire. Mm, what about the Persian Empire? Or the Han Dynasty? Don't forget about the Ottoman Empire. Or the Mongols? British Empire? Spain ruled a ton of shit for hundreds of years. Right? So did the Russians. Okay, 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 okay. Listen. When politicians, historians, or pundits like me talk about the United States being the most hawkish and warlike nation in history, it is a bit of an exaggeration. In terms of landmass or tenure or pure genocide, we've been outdone by a few predecessors. No question that if Genghis Khan, Ivan the Terrible, or Joseph Stalin had the capabilities that we have today, there would be no other countries. They would have bombed everyone. Good to have some perspective, but that does bring us to our entry point, which I'm arguing is the same as our entry point last week. Our 75-year run as the undisputed heavyweight champion in the world has been astounding. There's no question. But it's only been that long. And it started, tasteless pun fully intended, with a bang. After falling for 43 seconds, the time and barometric triggers started the firing mechanism. A uranium bullet fired down a barrel into a uranium target. Together, they started a nuclear chain reaction solid matter began to come apart, releasing untold quantities of energy. Just 13 months after the historic Bretton Woods Conference, where the world's leading economists gathered to plan out the new global economic order to achieve peace, the United States followed up with a violent exclamation point that changed everything. On August 6, 1945, we dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. And if this wasn't inexplicable and horrifying enough, three days later, three fucking days, we did it again and dropped a bomb on Nagasaki because they didn't surrender after the first one. There wasn't a soul on Earth by this time that thought that Japan had a chance to win the war at this point. And instead of demonstrating it somewhere remote but for the world to see, we decided to slaughter hundreds of thousands of people, not once, but twice. Even though the atomic age is now three quarters of a century old, this remains the only time nuclear weapons were used in warfare. We're it. We're the only ones who ever did it. Hiroshima was a statement, a genocidal and final statement that we had taken over the world. Nagasaki was evidence that we were fully psychopathic. Further evidence of our psychopathic tendencies was the belief among our power elites that nuclear bombs were less catastrophic than conventional war, because even though hundreds of thousands perished in an instant and hundreds of thousands more died from nuclear fallout shortly thereafter, 
they were able to get the trains up and running within just a matter of weeks. So let's bring in some of our heroes and antiheroes of the time. Even though this is an audio essay about the global power landscape as it's currently conceived, we're going to follow our typical UNFTR path to find out where it started and who was responsible. So we're actually going to spend most of this episode examining the years between 1945, at the conclusion of the war, to around 1950. Five years that would determine the next 70. So where were we, unfuckers? Oh yeah, that's right. The year was 1944. The brightest lights hashed out a new economic order that would theoretically ensure global peace through fairness and prosperity. But there were other figures in the power structure of the United States that were enthralled at the possibility of global domination on the one hand and the threat of losing it to the Soviets on the other. One of these was John Foster Dulles. It's hard to imagine now what a giant Dulles was during this period. Shit, even Carol Burnett was singing about him. I made a fool of myself over John Foster Dulles. An attorney by trade who was part of a powerful and connected family, Dulles was a religious zealot and power broker to the world who excused the actions of Adolf Hitler, promoted an America First doctrine, and warned against communism with a fervor that would inspire the likes of Joseph McCarthy. On the flip side of the personality coin was his younger brother, Alan, a brilliant but philandering scoundrel of a man who also leveraged his family's connection to cozy up to the power elites. Both men were enamored of uber-racist white nationalist Woodrow Wilson, whom they considered a friend and personal hero. John Foster Dulles would eventually become Secretary of State under Eisenhower, and Alan Dulles would help found and then run what would become the Central Intelligence Agency. Together, they would help craft U.S. foreign policy arguably to this day. In his book, The Brothers, author Stephen Kinzer remarks, quote, Only long after the Dulles brothers died did the full consequences of their actions become clear. They may have believed that the countries in which they intervened would quickly become stable, prosperous, and free. More often, the opposite happened. Some of the countries they targeted have never recovered, nor has the world." End quote. We'll dig into the organizations they founded and the worldview they sold in Washington, but to get an understanding of what Foster Dulles in particular believed was his calling, here he is in his own words. Quote, in the 10th century after Christ, the so-called Christian world was challenged by an alien faith. The tide of Islam flowed from Arabia and swept over much of Christendom. Now another ten centuries have rolled by, and the accumulated civilization of these centuries is faced with another challenge. This time the challenge is Soviet communism." End quote. Dulles and virtually everyone else that rose through the ranks in the immediate post-World War and beginning of the Cold War would approach the world with similar zeal, prompting the great Walter Lippmann to quip, quote, Americans must stop beating our heads against stone walls under the illusions that we have been appointed policemen to the human race. End quote. Lippmann was prescient, but his sentiment never resonated, and doesn't to this day. After the war, President Truman was anxious to govern and build upon the domestic success of his larger-than-life predecessor. But in the background, powerful military and business interests were keen to exert influence over the administration. 
this tension would divide us into two camps. Those committed to peace through diplomatic and economic cooperation, and those committed to peace through leverage of force. It's important to make this distinction. There's a temptation to vilify the hawks and praise the doves, but that lacks nuance and context. For all the acclaim Bretton Woods achieved with the formation of the World Bank and the IMF poised to lead the world into trade and out of desperation, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki would capture everyone's attention. Over the next five years, competing economic and military interests were forming, some in public and others in private. The United Nations was formally organized in 1945, ostensibly to create a new governing body for the world that would determine the rules of engagement going forward. Now, with the hot hand coming out of the war, the United States played an outsized role in governance and voting authority that continues to this day. While the Breton economists continued their work, resulting in the GATT in 1947, there were other economic minds, most notably Friedrich Hayek, who didn't necessarily buy into the Keynesian worldview and thus established the Mont Pelerin Society, which we discussed at length in our Fuck Milton Friedman episode. Now, the Dulles brothers were busy behind the scenes, agitating for a more aggressive stance towards the Russians who were quickly consolidating power throughout Eastern Europe and shutting down access to their power structure. Alan Dulles, who had spent the war years in a secret agency called the COI, later called the OSS, which practiced spycraft with very questionable results, was at first sidelined by Truman, who had little interest in building a secret agency in the United States. But Dulles and his colleagues met frequently to find a way back into service. Because intelligence gathering never stopped, Truman eventually revitalized the OSS and created the CIA in 1947 to gather intelligence to be given only and directly to the President of the United States. It wasn't yet the juggernaut that we would come to know, but it wouldn't take long to get there. In 1949, with the Russians gaining more and more power on the world stage and becoming ever more secretive, the United States and Europe entered a pact called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, for the purpose of, in its own words, deterring Soviet expansionism, forbidding the revival of nationalist militarism in Europe through a strong North American presence on the continent, and encouraging European political integration. At the same time, the intelligence community returned news that secret air quality tests determined the Soviets had successfully detonated their own nuclear weapon. Now, internally, the Hawks and the Doves in the Truman administration battled one another over policy, but by 1950, it was all but over. The Hawks would prevail when the Soviet-backed army of North Korea invaded South Korea and placed Truman in an awkward position. We'd won the big war, announced to the world that we would lead it through the next half century and beyond. And there, on the other side of the world, the Russians were perceived to be thumbing their noses at us by advancing the cause of communism, an offense too great for even the domestic-minded Truman. And that's not to say there weren't real threats on the horizon presented by the Soviets. Stalin was ruthless and deadly and had made his intentions known that Lenin hadn't gone far enough, hadn't done the hard stuff. The Western world wouldn't understand the scope of devastation Stalin brought for many years, with estimates now being that he murdered between six and nine million of his own people during his rule. But we were plugged in enough to know that he was ruthless and dangerous. The idea that the communists would meddle in world affairs and spread a doctrine that people like Foster Dulles believed to be more destructive to Christianity than Islam, that this was a once-in-a-thousand-year threat to Western powers and our version of one nation under Christ, bounced around Washington like a pinball. A pinball that would eventually cause the machine to tilt. UNFTR
we rejoin the secret meeting in the Oval Office where Speaker Pelosi, Senators Sanders, Manchin, Schumer, and Cinema try to work out their differences with President Harris and her grandfather, Joe. That was a rousing speech, Joe, but we need to get back to business. Agreed. I have a press conference in 10 minutes, and another in 30, and one after that. I think my problems were solved. How so, Nancy? My Twitter said that Paul Gosar killed that bitch AOC. Oh, Nancy, that was a joke. Damn it. Hey, I have an idea. Mm, Biden, I think you've had your chance, sweetie. I liked his idea about invading Cuba and Russia. Let's send them a glitter bomb. Kirsten, let the man speak. <laughs> this ought to be fun. Thanks, Manchurian. Here's the deal, man. I remember when my friend Barack gave me the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That was nice of him. Well, people love that kind of stuff. I think President Harris here should award the Medal of Freedom to the most deserving American. People will love us for it. Hmm. Go on, Joe Biden. I'm listening. Well, you want to give it to someone that will unite us all. Dean Martin. Fidel Castro. Ronald Reagan. QAnon. Now, I know I'm shot, but even I know they're all dead. No, I'm talking about the one American that everyone loves. Someone alive. The one person the whole country can believe in. Gosh darn it, I've slept my way across the globe, and I've heard his name echoed in every corridor. I think you should award the Presidential Medal of Freedom to this fella, Brandon. I am not going to be the one to tell him. UNFTR. So when you think about it, this is an amazing period, right? When you think about the competing ideals and the people behind them. So on the one side, you have the Keynesian and Kennan wings of the nation trying to force peace through economic stability and diplomacy. And on the other hand, you have figures like Paul Nitze and the Dulles brothers and Friedrich Hayek building a case for what would ultimately become the neoliberal model of the world. Fuck them, take it all, consume and subjugate. Benevolent dictatorship through the auspices of spreading democracy. Bretton Woods, the United Nations, NATO, IMF, GATT, which would eventually become the WTO, the World Bank, Mont Pelerin Society, the fucking CIA. None of these things existed. Before World War II and coming out of 1950, this was the way of the world. So hindsight gives us the ability to look at the havoc and destruction ultimately wrought by policy and legislation that unleashed the might, covert or otherwise, of the United States. But considering most of the policymakers of the time had seen two world wars, the Great Depression, and military depravity under both Hitler and Stalin that would shatter anyone's faith in humanity, it's understandable why we were a bit gun-shy. So add to the mix the horrifying capabilities of nuclear weapons, and it's doubtful that anyone, even today, would have done anything differently. And as difficult as it is to say this, I'm pretty confident that I would have been right there with them at the time. But what gave life to American policy from 1950 forward was a policy decree titled NSC-68 that would guide Cold War policy in America for decades, even after Kissinger made the bizarre move to declassify these documents in 1975, giving the world a paper trail glimpse at our policy of containment, disruption, and espionage. Among other things, it empowered the CIA to engage in, quote, propaganda, economic warfare, preventative direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation measures, and subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas, and refugee liberation groups, end quote. 
This will obviously be important as we get into the Reagan years. NSC-68 was essentially a policy cooked up by the resident hawks in the Truman administration, with the Dulles brothers lurking and playing a role, along with Paul Nietzsche and Dean Acheson, who were really the chief architects of the policy, though Acheson would act as a more dovish counterweight to Nietzsche during these years. Together, they would sell a wary President Truman that a zero-tolerance policy toward the Soviet Union, based on an idea called the, quote, correlation of forces, was necessary to protect against Soviet aggression. Correlation of forces essentially meaning that we needed to match strength at all times and correlate our aggression accordingly. You move a chess piece, we move a chess piece. Remember that these were men whose ideals were forged during World War II and believed in their souls that if you give a fascist an inch, like they did with Hitler, then he'll take a mile. You know, you got to stop them at the beginning. Like they should have stopped Hitler at Munich. They should never let him get away with that. They was just the asking for big trouble. You see? You see what I'm talking about? Now I have to find another Sweet Home Alabama clip to offset you. 99. It's Clemenza and Michael, a seminal scene in The Godfather. Anyway, as George Kennan wrote, quote, Somehow or other, the North Korean attack came soon to appear to a great many people in Washington as merely the first move in some grand design, as the phrase went, on the part of the Soviet leaders to extend their powers to other parts of the world through the use of force. The unexpectedness of this attack... The fact that we had no forewarning of it only stimulated the already existent preference of the military planners for drawing their conclusions only from the assessed capabilities of the adversary, dismissing his intentions, which could be safely assumed to be hostile. All of this tended to heighten the militarization of thinking about the Cold War in general and to press us into attitudes where any discriminate estimates of Soviet intentions was unwelcome and unacceptable." End quote. At this point, Truman did adopt all of the policy recommendations of NSC-68, which was referred to by historian Gaddis Smith as the most famous unread paper of its era. NSC-68 would truly set the policy agenda for the buildup of the United States military alongside a series of intelligence agencies, in particular the CIA. From this point forward, a stalemate was acceptable, American progress was preferred, but Soviet encroachment was unacceptable. The goal in Washington now was, at a minimum, to deter and contain. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. With John Foster Dulles fomenting discord with evangelical fervor and Alan Dulles jockeying to get back into the secret agent business and get off the sidelines, the stage was set for a new Cold War mentality that swept through Washington and was poised to go into action upon the election of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who chose Foster Dulles as his Secretary of State. The brothers would reign supreme, with one crafting policy and the other carrying out covert missions to overthrow governments from the Middle East to Latin America. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. The military power must be destroyed. That is, reduced to such a state as not to be able to prosecute the war. The country must be conquered, for out of the country, a new military force may be formed. But even when both these things are done, still the war, that is, the hostile feeling and action of the hostile agencies, cannot be considered as at an end, as long as the will of the enemy is not subdued also. Carl von Clausewitz By no means do I want to shortchange the next several decades, but we're going to move through them a lot faster than we just unpacked the few years after World War II. 
The reason I wanted to live in these years for a bit is to press on the point that so much of how we developed as a nation and molded the world to our liking was set in motion in such a short and powerful period of time. There's so much history that intrigues me, but I'm always blown away by this period of time, right? So these years would echo through subsequent decades and administrations like no other. Even Eisenhower, who had seen firsthand the devastation that man was capable of, and who upon exiting office warned us against the very institution that shaped him, would be responsible for the buildup of our nuclear program. A fact that he hid, and then denied, and then was eventually embarrassed by as the Soviets got a hold of our intelligence. Serial unfuckers have come along for much of this ride with us so far, so again, I'll encapsulate it as much as I can. In our neoliberal and free market episodes, we track the gathering influence of the Chicago School economists who helped moralize and justify U.S. interventions under the guise of free market expansionism. In our Violent States of America episode, we covered how, in addition to the wars that we admit to, meaning actually referred to as wars, Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf War, Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Iraq, we've also bombed or invaded Laos, Cambodia, Lebanon, Syria, Grenada, Haiti, Cuba, Chile, Panama, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Iran, Guatemala, Bolivia, Venezuela, Pakistan, Somalia, Sudan, Indonesia, and Yemen. Contrast this activity with our primary current nemesis, or so we're being told, China. 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 In the same period, China has had border disputes with Russia, taken aggressive actions against Tibet, was involved in the conflicts in Vietnam, Korea, and Cambodia in support roles, and had brief clashes with India in 1962 and 1967. That's it. Much of the focus these days is on their treatment of their own citizens, particularly marginalized groups. But we're talking about foreign interventions and aggression. And when you compare our resumes, there's no comparison. Since the onset of the Cold War, the United States has litigated conflict in a few different ways. Economic warfare through sanctions, actual boots on the ground deployments, backing insurgencies, covert operations and assassinations, airstrikes, drone strikes, and sometimes all of the above. Of course, the common defense of the nation is the supposition of war contemplated in our Constitution, but there have been almost no cases since Pearl Harbor that specifically threatened the homeland. This is, quite clearly, from nation-state to nation-state as 9-11 changed the equation dramatically. But in terms of clear and present danger to the homeland, outside of Cold War saber-rattling and positioning, there have been precious few instances where we have had to marshal resources to potentially guard against invasion. For policymakers, this obviously presented a problem. Moving from defense to deterrence and containment was an enormous policy shift that can't be overstated, and it's one that continues to infect our politics. The pretext for war from 1950 forward has fallen broadly into three categories. The Cold War, containing the spread of communism and nuclear proliferation. The war on drugs, battling against nations that grow and supply the drug trade and thereby threaten the health and welfare of our people. And the war on terror, which unleashed the full authority of the military to pursue perceived threats anywhere in the world, anytime. The 60s and 70s in America saw continued tension between the Depression-era generation that witnessed the Second Great War and the ascension of communism and the younger generation more focused on civil liberties, domestic policies, and issues of class and race. Our military held on to the vestiges of what worked in World War II, but through an entirely new framework of interventions in parts of the world we simply didn't appreciate. Korea and Vietnam challenged our confidence as the political and military class came to realize that new thinking would be required to litigate conflicts and press our theory of containment. The bottom line is that on the heels of helping liberate Europe and stand tall as the good guy in the world, 
we lost back-to-back -back conflicts that very few people understood. I think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. And the enemy was in us. What's interesting about the Cold War period, and even beyond, is how administrations would come in with different policy agendas, but typically land in the same spot when it came to our role as the world's policemen, as Lippmann noted. Democrats typically ride in on a wave of domestic policy and big social contract ideas like LBJ's Great Society, Carter's Environmentalism, Clinton's It's the Economy, Stupid, etc. The Republicans come rushing back with, wait, we're all fucked because drugs, communists, terrorists, immigrants. Democrats peddle hope, Republicans peddle fear. But once in power, they're handed the keys to the Oval Office, given a rubber stamp by some general, and probably shown around Area 51. Why the hell wasn't I told about this place? Two words, Mr. President. Plausible deniability. No matter the domestic agenda, our military belief system remains the same and in fact continues to ossify. Clean the environment, bomb the Middle East. No child left behind, fund a guerrilla campaign. There's no tension among our leaders when it comes to depravity abroad. Just a question of national mood and how much tolerance we have to hear about the shit that we do. Starting in the Nixon years, we began to blend our policy rationales and experiment with tactics. Communists now included socialists, so Latin America became a target. Economic sanctions and weaponized trade became a useful tool in the arsenal. Hayek and Friedman moved through the ranks to bury Keynesian theory, and people like David Rockefeller picked up the secretive mantle from Foster Dulles to form the Trilateral Commission in 1973, a favorite boogeyman of conspiracy theorists. The commission would gather politicians, business leaders, and economists from Europe and America and create policies, informally, that miraculously wound up in think tanks and eventually Congress. Beyond this type of shadow diplomacy and policy intervention, there were real-world interventions conducted by the CIA. This was Nixon's proving ground, and the young bucks from this era would grow up to lead the Reagan and Bush senior administrations. Gradually, the narrative would shift from Cold War to drugs, as the CIA let loose a torrent of disturbing initiatives from funding guerrilla operations and coups to funding and establishing the drug trade in South and Central America. Now, I know it's gauche to quote oneself, but here's an excerpt from our mass incarceration episode. Research the work of journalist Gary Webb, most notably his piece Dark Alliance, written for the San Jose Mercury News. His work was the first to really connect the dots of covert CIA activity to fund the Contras and essentially clear the way to move narcotics across the border in an elaborate chain of cash, mercenaries, drugs, and weapons. So despite the downward trend of violent crime and no evidence yet of a rampant drug problem, the Reagan administration increased anti-drug funding for the FBI, Department of Defense, and the Drug Enforcement Administration tenfold between 1980 and 1984, almost the exact size of the funding decrease to federal drug treatment, rehabilitation, and education programs. Cocaine funneled from Central America, hit the streets in 1985 in the form of crack, and was deemed an epidemic by the media by 1986. By the end of 86, the country had already adopted mandatory minimum sentencing requirements for drug-related felonies. We have a new business proposition to you, Barry. You bring your American guns to Colombia, deliver our cocaine here to the Contras. The Contras take it by fishing boats to Miami. And everybody's happy. During the Clinton years, the tension between our old world interventionist policy and desire to withdraw from conflict to focus on domestic agendas came fully into picture with what we did, what we didn't do, 
and what we did again. Bill Clinton rode in on a wave of war weariness from Desert Storm and a public that had grown tired of Republican policies that seemingly favored the rich. This was hope and change part one, but Clinton would inherit a messy situation from Bush Sr. in Somalia, which ended with the death of U.S. soldiers immortalized in the movie Black Hawk Down. Clinton withdrew our troops immediately, as our presence there as a peacekeeping force was wholly unclear. But on the heels of this came another crisis on the African continent that would come to define the Clinton foreign policy not for what it did, but for what it didn't do. Over a period of 100 days in Rwanda, members of the ethnic Hutus slaughtered 800,000 members of the Tutsi minority. The whole world watched in horror as the United States sat on its hands. More than the sex scandals that plagued the Clinton presidency, this period of non-action characterizes the heart of U.S. policy. With no strategic interests in Rwanda, our silence made it perfectly clear to the world what we valued and what we did not. Determined not to fail on such a humanitarian level again, Clinton intervened shortly thereafter in the crisis in Bosnia in 1995. According to a Brookings analysis, the driver to finally intervene was, quote, at the policy level, the day-to-day -day crisis management approach that had characterized the Clinton administration's Bosnia strategy had lost virtually all credibility, end quote. Ultimately, these years were extremely uncomfortable for the military-industrial complex. The Cold War was over, the drug war was in full swing, but it had taken a hard turn inward with the passage of the crime bill that directed resources internally to build the case for mass incarceration and hyper-militarization of domestic law enforcement. So with no clear designs on the world order and a shit ton of firepower, the hawks who found themselves unexpectedly on the sidelines when Clinton was elected got to work building a plan that would carry us into the next century. Like the Dulles brothers and other Cold War hawks that spent time dreaming of the new world order, neocons like Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz busied themselves in the shadows. Only they had the hubris to put it in writing. The members of the Project for a New American Century formed the nonprofit advocacy group in 1997. Many were reared in the Nixon years, came of age under Reagan and Bush Sr., and were ready for their spotlight when some hillbilly from Arkansas took the election. Stunned by this disruption, they created a policy document called Rebuilding America's Defenses. Here's a summary from SourceWatch.org. The Project for a New American Century seeks to establish what they call Pax Americana across the globe. Essentially, their goal is to transform America, the sole remaining superpower, into a planetary empire by force of arms. A report released by PNAC in September of 2000 entitled Rebuilding America's Defenses codifies this plan, which requires a massive increase in defense spending and the fighting of several major theater wars in order to establish American dominance. The first has been achieved in Bush's new budget plan, which calls for the exact dollar amount to be spent on defense that was requested by PNAC in 2000. Arrangements are underway for the fighting of the wars. So this is before 9-11. Think about that, the exact figure. These days, PNAC is mainly the obsession of 9-11 conspiracists, as we've covered before, but primarily because of one single phrase that essentially says that absent a catalyzing event to shift the mindset of Americans, it will be difficult to pull all of this off, to pull off all of the military recommendations, to pull off the budget, to pull off the framework for actually becoming a, quote, planetary empire by force of arms. Think about this fucking language for a minute, right? All of this was contained in this fucking document. All of it was conceived prior to 9-11. The budget was adopted exactly number for number 
before 9-11 when Bush took office. And then they got their catalyzing event. What's lost in this narrative is the doctrine itself is nearly everyone in the organization would eventually join the Bush administration. Regardless of what happened on that terrible day or our motivations for invading Iraq or Afghanistan, this policy document became gospel and America began operating under what is known as the Bush Doctrine, which basically says that if you so much as fart in our direction, we're going to end you and take your soul. Iraq was an obsession among the PNAC members long before 9-11, and as Clausewitz said, to do this right, the military must be crushed and the country conquered. All we needed was a reason to invade. Here's my card. You're right. This thing doesn't add up. The Iraqis don't fight, they don't use WMD. They just walk in here, find the goddamn cupboards bare. Something wrong here. And so we fucking made it up. We just invented WMDs and overthrew an entire fucking nation. Just like that. Forget clandestine shit, covert ops, funding guerrillas. We threw out every playbook and just fucking lied our way into war. Because that's us. That's who we are now. It's who we've been since the Dulles brothers were steering the ship and we no longer give a shit about optics. Which brings us to today on Fuckers and the new global order. A beast commits violence against specific things for immediate and visible purposes. It needs to eat. It needs a mate. It needs to defend its life. Man has these biological needs plus many more which are culturally created. Man will do violence not only against a specific something which gets in the way of one of his needs, he will do violence against a symbol which stands for, or which he believes stands for, that which prevents him from satisfying his needs. Howard Zinn, The Nation, 1962. In a few recent episodes, I talked about how we're all dressed up with no one to bomb since our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the point we've really been drilling is why the fuck our military budget remains not just unmoved, but scheduled to increase annually over the next decade. We tease the concept of realigning those dollars and resources into building a climate industrial complex and turning net zero emissions into a global competition. We prove the concept that non-inflationary deficit spending is the same whether it's on war or healthcare, paid leave or education. And yet here we are, armed to the teeth with no policy doctrine, no imminent threat, and no discernible vision emanating from this White House. For the first time in 75 years, it's almost like we're standing still while everyone else around us is moving forward. Our old framework for carving up the world is very much intact, mind you. Here's an excerpt from All Hell Breaking Loose, the book we covered in our climate episode that breaks it down. Quote, the Department of Defense has divided the world into a mosaic of six massive regions and established a geographic combatant command for each one. The Pacific Command, Central Command, Africa Command, European Command, Northern Command, and Southern Command. PAC was renamed Indo-Pacific Command in 2018, by the way. By law, all American military forces deployed within any one of those territories fall under the authority of the Senior Geographic Combatant Commander. This officer is responsible for assessing the security environment in his or her AOR and taking steps to overcome any vulnerabilities identified thereby, whether from conventional military threats or unconventional perils, such as those posed by economic turbulence, severe drought, and population shifts." End quote. We're still carving up the world in the same old way. And remember that the AP reports that we have over 800 bases in the world and 2,500 troops in Turkey, 800 in Syria, 3,000 in Jordan, 13,000 in Kuwait, 5,000 in the United Arab Emirates, 10,000 in Qatar, 7,000 in Bahrain, 3,000 in Saudi Arabia. 
and our alliances, even the ones that Trump was threatening to implode, still remain. So of course we have NATO and the North American Aerospace Defense Command between the US and Canada, otherwise known as NORAD. Is that the one that uses highly advanced radar, GPS tracking, and a vast array of cameras to keep track of Santa? You betcha. Then there's the US-Israel Strategic Partnership, the United Nations, of course, and ANZUS between the United States, New Zealand, and Australia. And let me see, sorry, I just, again, I gotta check my notes to see if I missed any. Oh, yeah, just a few. Let's see, we've got the African Union, Council for Peace and Security in Central Africa, Axis of Resistance in Asia, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Anglo-Portuguese Alliance, Franco-German Brigade, Common Security and Defense Policy of the EU, Baltron, Voltron? No, Voltron, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania Naval Pact. Oh, I like Voltron better. ANZAC between Australia and New Zealand, Union of South American Nations, South American Defense Council, Islamic Military Alliance, Arab League, South Atlantic Peace and Cooperation Zone, Organization of American States, Rio Pact, Collective Security Treaty Organization with six former Soviet republics, Sino-Russian Treaty of Friendship between China and Russia, Moroccan-American Treaty of Friendship. Were we ever not friends? Dunno. Weird. Mutual Defense Treaty with the U.S. and Philippines, Taiwan Relations Act between the U.S. and Taiwan to protect against China, the five power defense arrangements between the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and the International Maritime Security Construct dedicated to the Persian Gulf. Whew. And welcoming our latest step-on-your-own-dick moment, AUKUS. Hello, I'm from the Australian government. Now that we've completed our 20-year mission in Afghanistan by handing it back to the Taliban, it's time to blindly follow the American empire into another massive shit show. Introducing our new military partnership, AUKUS. In terms of how we view the world beyond just these alliances, we're kind of a shitty friend and an ugly foe. Depending on your relative value, we'll either treat you well or watch out. We have three primary buckets of friends and foes that can put you on the radar. You're either of strategic importance, resources, geography, labor, economic importance, trade, labor, debt markets, or military. In the strategic bucket, we have countries like Cuba, Israel, Taiwan, the nations surrounding the Strait of Hormuz like Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, and labor and resource-rich countries like Korea, Vietnam, Costa Rica, Taiwan, and China. Of economic importance to us are the big guys for the most part, Canada, Britain, Russia, China, Australia, Germany, Japan, France, Brazil, Switzerland. And our military interests revolve pretty much around Israel, Britain, France, Russia, Australia, China, and our proxies and surrogates like Saudi Arabia, Japan, and South Korea. Other than that, we really honestly don't give a flying fuck about you. But as evidenced by the incredible list of military alliances we just listed, the rest of the world isn't holding its breath anymore and waiting for us to invite them to the dance. They're moving forward and moving on. Like we talked about last week, the fact that the TPP didn't die, but might be picked up by China, the very country we were trying to deny, shows you how far off the ball we've taken our eye. The only thing that indicates that maybe, just maybe, the powers that be are paying attention to China drinking our milkshake is this call from Tony Blinken to China's President Xi, obtained exclusively by UNFTR. power play you're trying to pull here, but Asia, Jack, is my territory. So whatever you're thinking, you better think again. Otherwise, I'm going to have to head down there, and I will rain down on a godly fucking firestorm upon you. You're going to have to call the fucking United Nations and get a fucking binding resolution to keep me from fucking destroying you. I am talking scorched earth, motherfucker. I will massacre you. I will fuck you up. We're still living within a framework largely designed in the five years post-World War II and defenders of these world order systems consider it a success. 
We have the biggest economy, the biggest military. No one's coming to invade the United States. We do what we want, when we want, where we want. It's a compelling argument and the reason behind this institutional recalcitrance on the part of the ruling elite. So we're in a weird spot on fuckers. Trump ruined any diplomatic legitimacy we had on the world stage and the commander in sleep ain't the one to put that genie back in the bottle. Instead of paving the way for new multilateral agreements that include China while they're still in second place and we have a little leverage to get them to keep opening up, we're playing war games in the South China Sea. Rick Wolf recently equated this to the Chinese running submarine drills in the Long Island Sound. We look like idiots. Our trade agreements, the way we carve up the world into different commands with military bases spread across the globe, our incapacity to sacrifice one fucking dollar of the largest military budget ever to support education and social welfare policies at home, these are all signs of either madness or stupidity. Maybe both. I don't know. But I know this. All of those cable channels and broadcast news channels aren't asking the right questions. I want to play a clip of a question that Nancy Pelosi received at COP26 from a real journalist. Abby Martin with The Empire Files. Speaker Pelosi, you just presided over a, a large increase in the Pentagon budget. This Pentagon budget is already massive. The Pentagon is a larger polluter than 140 countries combined. How can we seriously talk about net zero if there is this bipartisan consensus to constantly expand this large contributor to climate change, which is exempt from these conferences? Military is exempt from climate talks. Pelosi answered in typical political fashion about the importance of climate change initiative and the military, etc., but glossed over the premise of Abby's question, presiding over a large increase to an already massive Pentagon budget. It's this. This is the piece that continues to shake me. The piece that brings me back to the same conclusion as our Global Order of Money episode. When David Rockefeller established the Trilateral Commission, Russia was very much at the forefront of their discussions. But Rockefeller had deep ties in China and knew Chairman Deng personally. And he was very clear with Rockefeller, as he was to the world, that the 20th century would be a period of great change and upheaval in his nation, but that the 21st would belong to China. And it's happening. It's inevitable. But that's not what upsets me and makes me nervous. We will not go quietly into second place. What makes me nervous is our anger and our potential, our capability and our might, our willingness to use it. That we don't have someone strong enough and captivating enough to inspire a domestic agenda that would heal the divide in this nation and distract us from doing terrible things abroad. We're running the same playbooks that were crafted in the Cold War, molded by the war on drugs and the war on terror. We have the same mentality, the same fucking people in charge, but they were placed there this time by corporations. We will not go quietly into second place. There's too much money, hubris, and pride riding on us being first. Look how we've sacrificed the health and welfare of our own people and how many people we've murdered abroad in pursuit of economic dominance. We will not go quietly into second place, even if it means we will take the earth down with us. Remember from our climate change episode that the Pentagon has been modeling climate change since the 1990s. Apart from some coastal parts of the United States, there's consensus that we're going to fare better than all other nations when we pass the point of no return. Well, guess what? China has access to the same material. Why do you think they're walking in behind us in the Middle East and Africa? Why do you think they're negotiating new agreements in our absence? They know what's coming. 
and they've been planning since the third plenary session of the CCP in 1978. And that's all well and good. There's no shame in second place. They have the size and the population, and it probably makes more sense. But the only problem is, we will not go quietly into second place. And that terrifies the shit out of me. Keep an eye on Tony Blinken. Follow the money. Update the playbook. Here ended the lesson. Look at you! You have a baby! In a bar! The show notes Calling out listeners one by one Show notes Bloopers and thank yous, it's so much fun Hey, 99. Hi. I'm exhausted again. Me too. Just leaving it. Leaving it all on the court. I think I overwrote. You? (laughs) Shush. (laughs) So books. We got book love. The first one, I had promised you a few episodes that I was going to go deeper into the Dulles Brothers, and I did. And I ate this book. I consumed it. I just couldn't stop taking it in. I loved it so much. So it's called The Brothers. We've got that in our bookshop. We put Machiavelli's The Prince in our bookshop. And then we've got Clausewitz on War in our bookshop as well. I didn't read the entire thing. Uh, I read in college and I had a pretty marked up copy of it, which was kind of weird to see what I thought was important in college and then look back at it now. But anyway, we had selections from Clausewitz in there. Uh, We also had The Hawk and the Dove about Nietzsche and Kennan, which is a pretty good one, too. There were some really key clips in there about Paul Nietzsche that I found important. A compendium of uh, Zinn articles, so Howard Zinn on war and the political economy of the early Cold War as well. So these were the resources, the primary resources, but we do have a number of links. If you go to our Substack, you can find the links from a number of articles that we also shared as well. Our Substack membership has grown like dramatically over the past couple of months, which I really, really appreciate. That's where we really lay out the essays. We try to tighten up some of the narrative as well, but it sort of acts as a quasi transcript, has all of the links in there. It's where we can communicate with unfuckers, send out discounts and stuff like that on our coffee. But remember, it will always be free. So go to unftr.substack.com, sign up immediately if you haven't signed up already, become a subfucker in addition to an unfucker, even if you're an unkanucker. There you go. So we had some coffee donations. The first one is from Can2 Kick It, became a member. Holy cow. Can2 Kick It became intrigued with the dope and insightful content, and then we shouted them out on Twitter and the nod to Tribe. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. And I'm gone. Ipa, 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 ipa. I think Manny just passed out. Mm. What really sold me was the Mean Girls reference. Holy shit, look at that. Oh, and that was my basic white girl reference. Oh, yay me. Gout L also became a member. That's G-A-U-T-E-L, who became a member. Said, packed and informative. I hope you can study and compare European countries more. Well, I hope this filled the bill just a little bit as we dip into it. But we have promised that we are going to unfuck the UK. But before that, we have to unfuck down under. That is definitely a serious promise. Judith H., as you heard up top, became a member, a pro member, no less, said, I'm learning more about economics, money, politics from this fucking podcast than I ever learned in fucking NYT or WAPO. Yeah, dig it. A. Fandre also became a member, said, there's no other podcast I look forward to more than UNFTR. God bless. Thank you for that. ENS also became a member, said, amazing show, folks. 
thanks for the weekly unfucking. And Emily S. purchased five coffees, said, spent the last several weeks listening to every fucking episode in order on my way to work. You've given purpose to my god-awful fucking commute to my shitty job. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could be a bright light. That makes me I, that makes me wish we were daily. Then I'd have a stroke. Uh, on Facebook... Carol H. said, way to go, Nettie. The show has been bequeathed to you. That's right. Last week I died and uh, gave the show to Nettie. Knudsen said, I know that Nettie can bring the content and he'll do his best to support her. He promises to 99 and Manny Faces that he's going to keep from rapping. But he has been listening to Newsbeat. That is a show that uh, Manny Faces also produces for Pointer. So he might actually, he might try to lay down a few verses. We'll see. Grangerous G said, so good. Listen to it twice. So dense, thorough, delivered with playful eloquence that defines the well-honed craft of unfucking the Republic. Whew, thank you, Grangerous G. So let's throw it over to the Twitters. 99, what do we got? One Bald Butter said, How about an episode on how world policy over the years created and molded the music of the many amazing political bands of the past several generations? Rage Against the Machine, Midnight Oil, and so many more. A bit outside the norm, but I bet you could do it in style. That is not outside of the norm. I am so fucking down with that. So, quick story. Years ago, I had a little bit of a friendship with a DJ called Scotty Ledger, who's hosted something called Dangerous Conversations. And a mutual friend had, had kind of hooked us up. And we had a conversation one day on air about what is the soundtrack? It was during the Occupy days. And, and the question really was like, what is the soundtrack of the revolution? Because Tom Morello was down at Occupy. Dude from Peter, Paul and Mary was down at Occupy. And all of these hip hop artists were coming down. Kanye was walking through the streets in Occupy at the time. I mean, it was wild. And we were talking about that. And it's something that always stuck with me. And it was one of the things that, you know, when I first got introduced to Manny Faces, really occurred to me that what the folks at Newsbeat are doing is trying to really bring independent hip hop into this idea of the soundtrack of the revolution. I guess the theory is that hip hop is the new folk music in terms of like anti-establishment and the mainstream hip hop obviously has a completely different characteristic of following to it. But a lot of the independent artists that Manny Faces teases out and, and has relationships with really do that kind of like hardcore advocacy, not only through their artistry, but in their lives. I did think that a cool episode at some point would be the soundtrack of the revolution to kind of track the role of music from, you know, Dylan and, uh, you know, right through to current generation of hip hop artists that are really kind of bringing it. So, yeah, I love this. It's going to take a while, but I, I think I have some resources. That might help me pull that off. We'll see. Who? Manny DeFaces. Uh, what about me? Hmm? I can be your folk advocate. Oh, yeah? Y yeah. Jam bands don't count. Sorry. I brought up a protest songs episode months ago. And then you tried to just pass it off as your own. And I was going to let it slide. <laughs> I was going to. But you know what? No. I doubled down with a reference that's 20 years old. And that's how long I've been thinking about it. Aha. And you're not mm. even 20. That is not true. <laughs> I'm 21. <laughs> God, imagine. Forever. Ugh, gross. Remember when, remember a time before you were allowed to drink legally? No. Me either. Because <laughs> it never existed. <laughs> Born with a beer bottle in my hand. So Socialist Jackie said, Unfucking the Republic is a good podcast, even though I'm hard left of you guys. I do listen to perspectives outside of my socialist bubble. Wow, hard left of us. Shit. <laughs> I want to know Socialist Jackie in the worst way. So Palouche Dak said, unfucking great as always. Thanks. Gypsy in America said, I recommend Pitchfork Economics and Unfucking Republic before I recommend Joe Rogan. Okay, everybody's in there. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Something for everybody. Maybe don't recommend Joe Rogan. Only Stop recommend Stop at 99. No. Stop. No, it's part of my brand. From day one, 
Well, it's part. Well, I was born with a beer bottle in my hand, and I was born hating Joe Rogan. Okay, but it's impossible. No, and you don't know that. What, you, you hated on news radio back in the day. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Gypsy in America feels differently. So just why don't you just leave that one where it is? I think Gypsy in America was being cute. You like know, facetious. Yeah, I don't want to slander, but I just wanted to address it in case. You do you. Okay. At Eating Waste said, I just watched that Zizek and Giannis interview you quote from this week. Platform capitalism slash techno feudalism would be a great topic to unwrap on the pod. I must stop objectifying Giannis. Such a brainy, good egg hunk. Zizek always brings the smut, though. <laughs> it's so funny. So Zizek is this like wild, like, like he's he's all over the place and he's always like, you know, going crazy. And then you have Giannis him. over there and he is such a, he is a... He's like this, his English is better than anybody who was born speaking English as a first language, but you know he could probably go into all these multiple languages. And then Zizek is this hot mess on the other side, and they're having this brilliant conversation between like the cool as ice Greek dude, and then Zizek is just like losing it all over. And it, it's actually a lot of fun, but you have to really go. Eating eating Waste and I are probably uh, two of the seven views mm-hmm. that are on that one. So anyway. So over on Instagram, original Nettie hugger Alex, who's a great friend of the show, sent us a photo of Nettie at a budget adoption meeting with a protest sign saying, the climate crisis requires local action now. Nettie always bringing it local, global, doesn't matter. Nettie on fire. We had a comment from Podbean from Smallburns. It's a great job this week, guys. Really appreciated this breakdown. This is all important information so we can know how the fuck we got so fucked, how to go forward differently and why we would want to. Thanks, Small Burns. So we had emails and uh, people that filled out our contact form at unftr.com. Maria from Puerto Rico sent us an email, said, The episode was great. I enjoy the explainer episodes. But I wanted to say, what? The guy whose review complained about the show notes and you selling coffee. I love, love, love show notes. It's a quirky thing that made me love the podcast even more. Thank you, Maria from Puerto Rico. We appreciate you. We don't know if it's Garel or Jarel, but uh, remember we had a conversation with Jarel or Garel last week. Said another informative episode, even though it (laughs) literally killed me today. Driving to Yosemite to unplug with the family and you read my email. My wife was like, what the fuck? Heard your response and I extremely appreciate it. You guys actually listen to your audience. I never do this because I feel like most pods only respond to their friends. Well, guess what, Gerald? Gerald? Okay. Now you're going to have to give us the pronunciation of it. Now you're a friend. You are officially an unfucker. Welcome to show notes. Yeah. And I want to say that we didn't have any friends. <laughs> Anyone you've heard from is just an unfucker. They're all our friends now, but... We're sort of like anonymous, the organization. They're a legion. We are legion. We are unfuckers. Although anonymous isn't cool anymore, right? No. Yeah. I don't want to... That's a shame. Yeah. But we are a legion. We are unfuckers. What can we be like? Dumbledore's army. Okay. <laughs> Andrew L. said another winner. You may have gone a little too easy on these organizations, being used to keeping third world regions in a form of endless debt slavery, often with compliant leaders corrupted by them. Yeah, I agree. It's funny because global order of money, global order of power, not intended to be the hit pieces that we did like on Reagan or Milton, any of those characters. When it's a hit piece, you know it's a hit piece. These explainer episodes are just designed to be like, how the fuck do we get here? And really be more objective about it. So one of the things that that I wanted to make sure really came across in this episode is like trying to put yourself in the mindset of that generation that created this Cold War framework. I'm not mad (laughs) at them, but I am mad at the people like 30 years on in the Reagan administration that used it and warped it and perverted it to sell this in a doctrinal way well past its usefulness. 
And even worse than that, these guys leading these, these project for a new American century, if there was ever evil in the United States, like the, the Trump wing of the party, of the Republican Party, is just built on stupidity. But if there was ever true evil, I think you found it in Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Bush Sr., Bush Jr. I think that that's the closest that we came to really evil. If you read the PNAC document and then you just match it up with the history, it's chilling. We, we signaled to the world exactly what we were going to do and then we fucking did it. We literally slaughtered millions of people from that document, from that policy prescription. So this stuff really matters. When we talk about Mont Pelerin Society, we talk about the Trilateral Commission, these places, these organizations where they gather in secret. I don't care if it's out in Sun Valley with a bunch of fucking billionaires. If there's rich people and powerful people gathering anywhere in secret to make handshake agreements among one another that literally then gets adopted as policy, that's a problem. It's hard to just scream about it without laying this foundation and this groundwork. So I wanted to make sure that this was more objective, I guess, Andrew, and just more straightforward, like a like a policy analysis, like this is, that was, we know it's fucked up and this is why everybody did it, because then we can rail against it once we all have the shared language. Anyway, sorry for the tangent. Andrew, thank you as always for being such a great listener. We got some really nice feedback from Dakota, came to us from Best of the Left. You make this really reformed hillbilly feel validated in my thinking as a former Appalachian. I got very upset every time someone from the community displays their unwelcoming aggression towards policies that would greatly benefit them. Cheers from Dayton, Ohio. Thanks for letting me know cussing had a place in political related discussion. I think it's actually pronounced Appalachian. Fun fact. Appalachian? I think that's how people there say it. So it's like Apollonia from The Godfather? I don't understand the question, and I refuse to answer it. Anna F. said, Uncanucker here! Born and raised in a small border community, and our 1960s TV only got three stations from the U.S. and CBC. Always been a passive observer of the slightly odd neighbors. Love UNFTR for the clear way you explain things, although the ISM show did catch me drifting a few times. <laughs> hey, me too! <laughs> I think I was drifting while I was writing it, too. That's why I, yeah, I need you guys to pull me back in here every once in a while, so I appreciate that. Your show about how the white banks and businesses stole the accumulated wealth of the American black population has really opened my eyes. Kudos to 99 Manny Faces for making the podcast possible. And Barbie, where you been? Oh, she actually said I'm still here, reading, listening, and proselytizing for the triumvirate at UNFDR, Max Manny, and 99. Thank you, Barbie. Elena asked that on your episode, The Violent States of America, you mentioned that the United States is not bothered by socialism in Canada, but the problem arises when some country in Latin America adopts socialist policies. Oh, yes, you are right on. You know that Mexico saved Evo Morales when the fascists did their coup in Bolivia. If my government had not rapidly brought him to Mexico, they would have assassinated him. So Elena S. is an awesome unfucker from Mexico who gives us a ton of perspective and history from Mexico and has actually sent a bunch of resources when we eventually get to unfucking our relationship with our neighbor down below. I just had a vision of mm -hmm. when we get to every country and we have like an interactive globe and you can click on the country and that and our episode will come up. Neat. Yeah. Along with the face of the unfucker that like adopts it. Oh, yeah. Like we could have adopt an episode, right? Like on the highway? <laughs> yeah, like a little sign. You can clean up all the garbage around That's us. That's actually really fun. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. And I love your idea. Aww. We're the best. Yeah. Bobby McD. 
Oh shit, this is okay. 99 and I were so fucking excited about this because it was like our worlds colliding in the most spectacular way. So, Bobby McDee, as you might remember, is an author from Ireland who recently came out with a new novel that we had covered on the show a few weeks ago. And I loved it. I consumed it in a night that I was supposed to be writing. I just fell completely in with Bobby McDee's book called Jonestown. So, we mentioned that on the show. And here's what Bobby had to say. I reached out to Bookstore Kim, an unfucker that you know we love, who's up in Vermont, who owns a bookstore, but she's also a public official in her town. Uh, Bookstore Kim, and not only had she got my book in stock, but she's a total sweetheart. UNFTR really does have the best people. Bobby uh, has an Instagram and he tagged a picture. I guess Bookstore Kim sent a photo of Jonestown in the bookshop. I'm dying. I'll make sure to share it. I'll repost it on our feed. I love it so much. Yeah. Right? We finally, we found the title of the bookstore. Uh, We were discussing it the other week. Oh, yeah. Please hold. Well, I'll read the P.S. while you're looking for that. It's P.S. U-N-F-T-R in Irish Gaelic is an publoc (laughs) tadeshu. It's probably not that accent. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what that was. (laughs) I don't know either. Um, At least, but Bobby McDee wrote it phonetically. It's like he really knows you. A publoc tadeshu. That might be racist. Really? I don't know. Okay. I'm just like fucking with you. Sorry. Bookstore Kim's bookstore mm-hmm. is called Green Mountain Books, and they're at Green Mountain Books on Instagram. Is she is, Does she own Green Mountain Coffee as well? <laughs> she owns anything with Green Mountain. That'd be great. Bookstore Kim's a fucking billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> owns all of Vermont, like has Bernie Sanders in her pocket. That's good stuff. I'm sorry. He's small just... enough to fit in the pocket. Oh, he's adorable. I know, little Bernie. And I would like to just personally thank Bookstore Kim. Shut up, Senator Booker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so cool, man. I mean, this is yeah, global. Yeah, cool, now. man. Radical. Radical. Sick, dude. Yeah. Tubular. This is global now. Bobby McDee from Ireland hooking up with Bookstore Kim from Vermont. Some unfucking goodness right there. Are we going to have to do a state by state unfucking as well when I get to my world map? I mean, God willing, <laughs> we have the time and we're doing this for that one. That would be really fun. Yeah. Let's do a whole year and only two states. <laughs> mm. If we have 50 and then Puerto Rico and then uh, Guam. Well, I'm hoping. What? To actually have 50 with Puerto Rico and DC. Florida's not leaving. Florida and New Jersey can't stay. I'm on board with Florida just because it makes sense geographically. I would like it to snap off and hit Cuba. That well, what did Cuba have to do with anything? I don't know. That's it's not just, fair. It's just right there. I think, so please apologize to Cuba. To Cuba. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Cuba. Thank you. Mas bien, Pidal. Mas bien, Maximo. Gracias. I don't think that Jersey can go anywhere just based on where it is. Uh. Hmm. It could. We could cut it out. We could, like, squeak out there. We could cut it out. It's totally doable. If all of the unfuckers Just get a giant sawzall. I was going to say, what if we all get saws? It's like a hands across America. Is that what, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, what were you, two (laughs) when that happened? I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. But we could all, it'll be saws across New Jersey. (laughs) We'll all just saw it off. It's amazing, right? (laughs) Should we make a shirt? Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> a fundraiser. We'll make like it'll be like Live Aid. We'll have like a huge concert. So listen, if you are down under or an unknocker or they know a Euro fucker, they know it transcends. You gotta understand. It transcends. I know you probably saw the Jersey Shore and you know, but there's a thing here. It's not, you know, it's like you guys know that I, I have a, a connection to Jersey and, and that I can hear you, right? Ugh, 
I love, there are some people from New Jersey I love. I really do. And I want to airlift them out of there before we, hands across New Jersey, saw them off the map. But we're from New York. It just is what it is. They got to go. And I don't want to change the flag. 50 nifty United States, right? 50 stars on the flag. Sorry. If it's between you and Puerto Rico, you're gone. You really want New York there. Yeah. If it's between you and Puerto Rico, you're, you're gone. Done. You're fucking done. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. This is Baby Girl Faces, and you're listening to Unfudging the Republic. Unfudging. <laughs> the show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99, who is prepared with something really clever right now. I just know it. Would you believe I had multiple ideas last night falling asleep and I didn't write them down? Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Love and distributed by Rockets. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. A lot of books in there this week, okay? And uh, get some native roasted coffee. You know what to do. Go to unftr.com slash shop and fucking buy that coffee. Support this show. Support our friends on Puspatuck Reservation in New York. And read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. It's always fucking free. Mm. 99. Yeah. Peace out. Bye. Ronald Reagan. QAnon. I know I'm shot. <laughs> you, I swear to God you did. Well, you'll figure it out. Yeah, I will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you fucking asshole. <laughs> You're going to be on the Cursing Man show. You don't have to curse. Don't worry about it. Should I say... No! Should you say what? Fudge. Fudge. Say unfudging the republic. Unfudging the republic. That uses highly advanced... That uses highly revenge. Highly advanced... Highly advanced. Highly. Highly. Advanced. Advanced. Radar. Radar. And. And. Strategically. 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 Stra. Stra. Strategically. 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 I really want you to say strategically.